Those themes from Jeremiah are going to come out in the passage today as we're looking at Genesis chapter 18, <clears throat> verses 1 to 15. I've entitled it Entertaining Angels. <clears throat> and you'll understand that as we get into this passage this morning. <clears throat> in Outlive Your Life, Max, Max Lucator writes this. Long before the church had pulpits and baptistries, she had kitchens and dinner tables. Even a casual reading of the New Testament unveils the house as the primary tool of the church. The primary gathering place of the church was the home. Consider the genius of God's plan. The first generation of Christians was a tinderbox of contrasting cultures and backgrounds. At least 15 different nationalities heard Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Jews stood next to Gentiles. Men worshipped with women. Slaves and masters alike sought after Christ. Can people of such varied backgrounds and cultures get along with each other? We wonder the same thing today. Can Hispanics live in peace with Anglos? Can Democrats find common ground with Republicans? Can a Christian family carry on a civil friendship with the Muslim couple down the street? Can divergent people get along? The early church did. Without the aid of sanctuaries, church buildings, clergy, or seminaries, I say that with a little bit of fear and trepidation, right? Um, without clergy. <laughs> They did so through the uh, clearest of messages, the cross, and the simplest of tools, the home. Not everyone can serve in a foreign land, lead a relief effort, or volunteer at the downtown soup kitchen, but who can't be hospitable? Do you have a front door? A table? Chairs? Bread and meat for sandwiches? Congratulations, you just qualified to serve in the most ancient of ministries hospitality. Sometime, uh, something holy happens around a dinner table that will never happen in a sanctuary. In a church auditorium, you see the backs of heads. Around the table, you see the expressions on faces. In the auditorium, one person speaks. Around the table, everyone has a voice. Church services are on the clock. Around the table, there's time to talk. Hospitality opens the door to uncommon community. It's no accident that hospitality and hospital come from the same Latin word, for they both lead to the same result, healing. When you open your door to someone, you are sending this message, you matter to me and to God. You may think that you're saying, come over for a visit, but what your guest hears is, I'm worth the effort. And so hospitality, Judy and I love to have people over for a meal into our home. We enjoy doing that because inevitably um, we connect with those individuals. We enjoy each other's company. Uh, we're able to talk about a lot of different subjects that wouldn't normally, we wouldn't normally have time to, to talk about on a Sunday morning as we're greeting you. Many times we've found that we have common interests and likes. But where do we learn this from? Well, Judy and I learned this, the importance of hospitality from our parents both sets of our parents were uh, just great in inviting others over to their, their homes or out to a restaurant for a meal. Hospitality was modeled for us. And so I've been introduced to a large number of ethnicities because of my parents' hospitality, especially when we moved to Birmingham, Alabama. A lot of ethnic groups there. Man, my parents just have, have had a lot of people in, a lot of different backgrounds. And so it's been great for me. From Max Lucado's qualifications for hospitality, we all have everything that we need in order to serve in this way. And so I want you to take a moment to think about the last time you invited a person or family into your home for a meal. <clears throat> Just be thinking about that as we go through this passage today. Three men visit Abraham 
and he jumps into action to provide incredible hospitality for them. He includes his wife, Sarah, and at least one other servant in that preparation process. And while hospitality covers the first eight verses, <clears throat> what encompasses all 15 verses is how Abraham and Sarah reacted to the presence of the Lord in their midst. We'll see that today. <clears throat> so the author of Genesis wants us to wrestle with this big question today. It's not a big idea. It's a big question today. How do we react to the Lord's presence in our lives? We're going to see two reactions today, worshiping and wavering. That's our two points today. And so as we think about that, and I, I'll allow it to sink in for just a moment for you. Let's just commit this passage to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today as just hungry people. Lord, we hunger and thirst for your righteousness, Lord. We, we want to know what your word has to say. We want to know how it applies to us. And Lord, I pray that today, as we go through this passage of scripture, that you would illumine our hearts and our minds through your Holy Spirit. Would you give us wisdom to understand what you want us to learn from this today? Lord, would we apply it directly to our own hearts and our own lives? That, Lord God, we will leave this place and transform our communities with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we come to you as just humble servants today, asking for your power to be poured out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at Genesis chapter 18, <clears throat> verses 1 to 15. We're going to start with verses 1 to 8. This is what God's word says. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance to, of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all uh, wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to, to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three says of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran uh, to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near, near them under a tree. <clears throat> so what we see here is uh, the narrator kind of sets the stage for us in verse 1. The narrator's giving us information up front that Abraham didn't even have at this point at first. It's later revealed to Abraham that one of the three men is the Lord. And scholars call this either a Christophany, Christophany if we're talking about Jesus' appearance prior to his birth, or a Theophany, which is the appearance of deity on earth. So one of those two is what's happening here. And we're given insider information before the narr narrative unfolds. So the Lord here is the Hebrew word Jehovah. So Jehovah appeared to Abraham. So you know, the narrator already sets it up for us up front that one of these three visitors is the Lord. It's Jehovah. And so that helps us to understand that as we go through this, it's going to be revealed to Abraham. We see some descriptive information then. We get geography. Abraham's back, Abraham's back in, in Hebron, which is where the trees of Mamre were at. And so just outside of Hebron is where he's at. And we see Abraham's location. He's sitting in front of his tent and we see what time of day it is. It's in the heat of the day. So we get those, just that descriptive information as well from the narrator. 
And then we see Abram, Abraham's actions. He does three things. He looks up, he gets up, and he bows down. <clears throat> and when he looks up, perhaps Abraham was taking a, a little nap. And, and during the hottest part of the day, most people would either they would stop working, and they would stop traveling, and they would just rest. And so when Abraham looked up and saw these three men standing nearby, he knew that something was up. Why were these three men traveling right now? This was the heat of the day. They should have been sitting and resting somewhere. And um, then it says that he got up. Warren Wearsby says that Abraham was both curious and, and courteous. He wanted to know what was going on. Why are these three guys out there? And so he, his curiosity motivated him to run from his tent to meet these men. And he obviously realized that these men were not just ordinary men, especially one of them, as we'll see in just a moment. And the third thing he does is he bowed down. So he showed incredible respect and reverence for them, even though he did not know them. He bowed low to the ground. Now, we're not certain if Abraham recognized the Lord at this point. <clears throat> Assuming that he didn't recognize the Lord, we see modeled in the Old Testament what the New Testament writer of Hebrews encourages us to do. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 2. Do not forget to um, entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. You know, on Thursday night for the uh, Thursday evening discipleship gathering, you know, I, we get to ask more questions and kind of break this down and talk a little bit more about it. And, you know, the, I, I asked the question, I was like, have you ever experienced that? Like, have you ever experienced, like, angels unaware? How many of you have heard stories of, like, there's a car accident out in the middle of nowhere, and, and one of the people in the car, like, has this person that shows up and just is helping to calm them down and say, it's going to be okay, everything's going to be all right, you know, the emergency uh, team's on the way, and then um, after uh, they're able to, to be better, they're like, hey, there was somebody that came and, like, just helped me to be calm, and who was that person? And they're like, well, when we got there, there wasn't anybody here right? And you're like, oh my goodness, that was like an angel unaware. Like, we're entertaining angels, and we don't know whether we're doing that, when we're meeting people and inviting them to church or inviting them to our home for a meal. <clears throat> We've all been uh, asked the question, if you had the chance to t talk to your hero, who would it be and what would you say? Washington, D.C., a cab driver, Sam Snow, didn't have much of a chance to prepare for a conversation with this hero, because it took him by surprise. While driving his taxi recently, and this was 2017, um, Snow mentioned to his passengers that even though he was a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, his all-time favorite player was Broncos legend John Elway. The passengers then asked him if he thought he could recognize Elway if he ever met him. Snow then turned around to realize that the famous former quarterback who was in Washington, D.C. for the presidential inauguration was in fact riding in his own back seat. <laughs> it's a good thing he said what he said, right? <laughs> The two snapped a quick picture, but only after Snow chastised Elway for beating his Steelers so many times in the playoffs. <laughs> but, like, what would we do? And, you know, we, whoever our hero may be, if they were to just appear and, and we had a chance to talk with them. Whether or not Abraham knew he was bowing down before the Lord, we see him modeling worship of the Lord. I think he knew. I, I was just sharing, you know, and I'm, this is me just, uh, uh, my thoughts. 
It's not scripture. But I'm thinking like Abraham might be sitting there, you know, it's the heat of the day. He just woke up from a nap. His eyes are a little bit crusty and he looks up and he sees these three figures. He can't make out who they are. And because it's the heat of the day, have you ever seen those heat waves, you know, coming up off the ground? That's kind of, you know, messing with uh, him being able to see clearly who these people are. But he knows that they need help. And so he gets up and he runs to them and all of a sudden he sees one of them and he goes, it's the Lord. And he recognizes who it is and he bows low to the ground. Our first principle today is this, that God is pleased when his people eagerly worship him. We see the eagerness of Abraham here to serve the Lord, to worship the Lord. Here's a, John Corson says, here's a 99-year-old man who runs to meet the Lord. How do you and I greet the Lord when the alarm clock goes off for devotions and prayer, for meditation and worship? Are we that eager? Or are we like, yeah, you're like, you're waking up just excited to meet with the Lord. Are you kind of like, oh man, here we go again. It's another morning. I'm so tired. What is our attitude and posture when we meet with the Lord? Are we excited to see the Lord, to be with the Lord? Do we give him the proper reverence that he is due? And I have to admit to you today that I don't always run to the Lord in excitement and anticipation, and I don't always bow low to the ground in worship of him, but this is certainly how we should approach him with eagerness and humility. Francis Chan challenged me recently through a video that's part of a book that we're reading as a board to beg God for humility. Beg, beg, beg him for humility. And that's been part of my prayer. There's a, another one um, th that I've been praying as well, and it's that the Holy Spirit would just have a monopoly in my life. And so I want to come before the Lord in total submission and humility so that he can use me for his glory. And perhaps you're recognizing that you do not come to the Lord with excitement, anticipation, and humility. And if that's something that you desire to do, then this next step is for you. It's on the back of your communication card today. It's to eagerly approach the Lord each day with excitement, enthusiasm, and humility. Man, just make that a part. If that's your desire, make that a part of your day. Like, get up with excitement and anticipation. I'm going to meet with the Lord today. Abraham looked up, he got up, and he bowed down, but then he provided incredible hospitality, as we see in verse 3. He says, um, it seems probable that as Abraham approaches the three men, that he recognizes one of them as being God. And I, the reason I think that is because God had just appeared to him fairly recently, perhaps within three months, to establish the covenant of circumcision and the promise that he and Sarah would have a baby boy. And so this visit happened when Abraham was 99 years old, the one that we're talking about right now, this uh, next visit can't be too distant from the previous one because Isaac is born when Abraham is 100 years old. That's within the year. So I think this is a short period of time between these two visits. So perhaps Abraham recognized God, which prompts his worship of the Lord by bowing low to the ground instead of just bowing his head in respect of a superior. So, you know, it was, it was common part of hospitality to kind of bow to uh, those that you were going to provide hospitality to, but it wasn't like the super low bow to the ground. It was probably, probably just a, a bowing of the head in respect of those individuals. But here we see him, he's bowing low to the ground because I think he recognizes that this is God in his presence. And so <clears throat> this is what is taking place here. This is what's happening. So perhaps, like I said, Abraham recognized God, which prompted this worship of God. Now, the original Hebrew here, in the NIV, it, it has my Lord, all lowercase letters. But um, 
uh, Walkey in his commentary says, this is better translated, my Lord, all capital letters. The translation, my Lord, all lowercase, is misleading since the Hebrew text refers to a title for God. The NIV, like I said, translates the same Hebrew in, in chapter 18, verse 27, as the Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, although it should be written in uppercase as well. And then Kyle and Dillich say, perceiving at once that one of them was the Lord, he prostrated himself reverentially before them and, and entreated them to not pass him by, but to suffer him to entertain them as his guests. <clears throat> so Abraham has been called a friend of God, right? He's, he has this close relationship with God, and he wants to continue this close relationship with the Lord. Um, and so he offers an opportunity for fellowship. So we see in verses 4 and 5 just normal hospitality that's offered. Abraham offers the three travelers the standard hospitality for the ancient Near East, washing their feet, providing some refreshment through food, and then some rest. They all agreed to not pass by, but to allow Abraham the opportunity to meet their needs. And then in verses 6 through 8, we see extravagant hospitality. Abraham offered them a meal, but what he provided them was a feast. The protocol, as Walton says, required that the meal served to the guest exceed what was first offered. And we see Abraham doing that here. He does just that. He asks Sarah to make bread with three says of fine flour. So we're like, okay, how, how much is that? Is that a lot? I don't really know. How much is three says? Well, three says would have made more bread than three men Abraham and Sarah could eat on their own. This was just an, it was an abundance. Let me help you understand a little bit. In 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 5, or 25, verse 18, tells us Abigail made sufficient provisions for David and his band of outlaws. So this was his army with five says of parched grain. The trench that Elijah dug around the, that base of the altar at Mount Carmel, uh, which was then filled with 12 jars of water, was large enough to hold two says of seed. So, I mean, like, Abigail is feeding a whole army with five says, and here Sarah is making bread for five people with three says. This is, a, this is extravagant hospitality. He's making a whole bunch of bread. Just get the fine flour out, and let's make a bunch of bread. Then he selected a choice tender calf and had a servant prepare it. Now, while the offering of bread was very generous, the offering of meat was extravagant. Meat was not a normal part of their diet, of their meals. They weren't just you know, killing a calf all, every day uh, to have a meal. <clears throat> so this was extravagant again. And it was reserved for special occasions. To help us understand that, just think of the prodigal son. He comes home and the father's like, kill the fatted calf. In my son's home, we have to celebrate. This is a special occasion. And then the older son comes in from the field and he, he hears all this celebration going on. What's going on? And the one servant says, oh, your son, your brother has come home. Your father's killed the fatted calf. And, and then the older son goes, he won't even give me a goat. I can't even have a goat to share with my friends. And he's killed a fatted calf for this sinful brother that's come back. Right? This is reserved for a special occasion. This is extravagant hospitality that Abraham is, is providing for the Lord here. And he brought curds and milk, and this was also pretty special for the guests. Wolke says in the ancient Near East, goat's milk was especially prized because of its energy and easy digestibility. Like, Abraham's just pulling out all the stops for the Lord and his two angels here, and it's so cool to see this. Extravagant hospitality. Principle two is this, as it applies to us, the Lord is honored when we offer hospitality to others. 
I was sharing this this past week with a group that one of the best ways to connect new people to the church is through inviting them out for a meal or having them over for a meal. That helps to connect new people that are coming to the church to be connected to the church. They're making uh, connections. They're, they're finding what Judy and I find, that there's, we have common ground. We have the same likes. Maybe that turns into something more where we spend time together doing a particular activity. As Max Lucado already said, every one of us has all that we need in order to qualify for the ministry of hospitality. We already have it. And so I want to encourage everyone to consider who they can invite over for a meal this week. And so that's the second next step today, is invite someone from the church to have a meal with me or us, either in my home or at a restaurant. The third principle is this today. God is glorified when we give our best to him. Abraham didn't spare any expense when it came to providing for the needs of the Lord and his two angels. He was willing to offer his best to the Lord. And so the question for us today is, are you offering your best to the Lord? The best of your time, the best of your talents, the best of your resources. The third next step is this, and that's to offer the best of my time, talents, and resources to the Lord. What does that look like, though? Our resources are tithing. It's giving to the Lord. It could be bringing non-perishable food items for in-gathering. It could be preparing an Operation Christmas Child shoebox. That's our resources. How about time? Volunteering on Sunday mornings or Wednesday evenings. And I already told you you can sign up this morning at the Welcome Center to do that kind of stuff. Serving um, with our time at the Upper Adams Food Pantry at the mobile food pantry that comes here, the Gettysburg Soup Kitchen. We have all kinds of opportunities where we're serving those in our community. Maybe that's how you're giving up your best time to the Lord. Your best talents, uh, you can do it by serving with one of our commissions, on one of those commission groups, providing special music, being a part of the worship team, and the list goes on and on and on, using the gifts and talents that God's given to you in order to serve. Abraham's ministry to the Lord was exceptional, and we see several characteristics that we should follow. And Warren Wearsby kind of lays it out. I love how he lays it out, and I'm just going to simply share what he says. He served personally. He ministered immediately. He served generously. He served humbly. And he served cooperatively. He involved others. Sarah and the servant. And we should serve the Lord in the same way, personally, immediately, generously, humbly, cooperatively. Abram reacted to the Lord's presence with worship and service. That takes us back to our big question today. You know, how, how do we react to the presence of the Lord in our lives? We see how Abraham did it. He worshiped and he served. But how did Sarah react? Let's look at verses 9 to 15. This is what God's word says. Where is your wife Sarah, they asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? <clears throat> is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you in a, it, at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. 
Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. <clears throat> so here, <clears throat> I'm, the subpoints are all C words. So I had to use a modern um, cultural reference for the C word. It's crib. Sorry. For you younger folks, you're like, yeah, all right. Modern culture. So the three men are just ask Abraham where his wife is, uh, and he says, um, she's in the crib. Right? She's in the tent. Um, I'm sorry. I'm, it's not always easy to come up with words, you know, that all start with the same letter. So <laughs> just give me a little grace today. <laughs> Especially with the last one. You'll see when we get there. Uh, it's the fifth one. <clears throat> That's another one. First and last were tough. It's fascinating that they know her name, especially since we're not told in the passage that Abraham introduced them to her. She's been in the tent making bread. He goes and picks it up. He brings it out to them. You know, they, they haven't even seen her. But they know her name. He uh, certainly could have introduced her when, when she brought the bread out, but I'm guessing he went in to get it. But it seems as though they're asking where she is because they have not seen her yet, and Abraham tells them that she's in the tent. Now, the second C word is covenant. That one's not too bad. In the original Hebrew, it, it simply says, and he said, the NIV has added the Lord because that's who's speaking to Abraham in verse 13, and we also see from verse 1 that it's the Lord who visited him. He, in verse 10, is obviously speaking about the Lord. So the Lord's now restating the covenant that he shared with Abraham so that Sarah can hear it. And the Lord's is also giving a specific time frame for the first time. Now, Abraham uh, will not have to wonder when this promised son will arrive. Within a year, Sarah will become pregnant and give birth to a son. And obviously, the three men wanted uh, to know where Sarah was so that she could hear uh, and not miss this covenant announcement. So it, is, it is, seems to me that Abraham uh, knew about this because the Lord had spoken to him before, had met him before, but he didn't tell Sarah. He never told Sarah, hey, the Lord came and said, we're going to have a baby together. Because when she hears it for the, this time, she's like, oh, right, I'm old. What are they talking about? I have no idea. It's like she's never even heard this news before. We're told that she was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind the three men. The, three, the third C word is confused. The narrator, again, gives us information to help us understand Sarah's reaction to the covenant announcement and the confirmation uh, the confrontation that will take place momentarily. Abraham and Sarah were old. Narrator tells us that. Sarah had reached menopause and was no longer having a monthly cycle. Her body was not producing eggs that could be fertilized anymore. That's why she's like, how is this going to happen? Her body, as Wolke says, is pro procreatively dead. We see in Romans chapter 4, verse 19, these words, without weakening in his faith, he, he's talking about Abraham here, faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Like this, and I think God's waiting for this to happen so that he can be glorified. So that they don't say, hey, we did this on our own strength. We see Sarah's reaction. She laughed and she had doubts. It's important to note that she laughed to herself. She didn't do this out loud. And, and she thought in her mind that she was worn out and her master was old. She didn't say these words out loud. Hang on to that thought because we're coming back to that uh, with, the with some application in just a little bit. So she's worn out. She's aware that, that she has reached menopause. Even though she's never had any children of her own, she's watched what menopause has done to the other women in her family. They're no longer able to have children. It's done. 
And so she knows what this means. And from a human perspective, Sarah laughs and questions the validity of the Lord's announcement because she knows herself and her body. Sarah's reaction to the presence of God in her life was doubt. That was the first reaction. We'll see the second in just a moment. What she was forgetting was the ultimate power of the Lord to do the impossible. The, the Hebrew word for pleasure is aden. And if you see it spelled out, it's Eden. It's the same Hebrew word that's used for the Garden of Eden. That's fascinating to me. I mean, if we never looked into the original language, we would never catch that, right? But it's just amazing to me, and as Mark and I were talking about that concept this past week, it's fascinating to think that Sarah would consider having a baby or being intimate with Abraham once again as like returning to the Garden of Eden, to perfection, right? She's like, if I would be able to have a a baby, it would be such a pleasure. It would be like returning to the Garden of Eden in God's perfection. This would be amazing. And so Sarah's laughter and, and thoughts are not lost on the Lord The fourth C word is confrontation. The Lord confronts Abraham about Sarah's private laughter and thoughts. The Lord then asks if anything is too hard for him. And this is really a rhetorical question. He's not waiting for an answer. He already knows. It's God. And so the fourth principle today is that God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. There's nothing beyond God's power to accomplish. He can as easily bring Sarah's womb back to life as he created man from the dust of the earth or a woman from the rib of man. He can take the ashes of a cremated body and reinstitute it when Jesus Christ returns in the clouds. He can remove the cancer cells from any human being with just a thought or the touch of his hand. He can restore sight, hearing, and speech to those who were born that way. He can bring back to life those who are dead. He can save any sinner. Um, Gango and Bramer, they cite voice, and this is the quote. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is there any sin for which the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cannot atone? Moses was a murderer, but he was saved. David was an adulterer and a murderer, and he was saved. Peter denied Christ. Paul killed Stephen. These and countless other sinners have been saved by the merits of Jesus Christ alone. Their salvation was not too hard for God. Why should yours be impossible? God says to you, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall, they shall be like wool. Maybe you're here today and you're going, I, my sins are just too great. There's no way that God can forgive And I'm here to tell you today, God's all-powerful. And he can forgive you. <laughs> Whatever sin you think is too bad, he can forgive it. And he wants to today. And so it's not on the back of your, well, it is on the back of your communication card, but it's not one of the next steps. It's on the other side that says, you know, I want more information about becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're there and you're ready today. You're saying, okay, God's all-powerful. He can take care and forgive this sin that I think is unforgivable. He is all-powerful. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed for you. I encourage you to make that decision today for the very first time. If you mark that box, I'll be contacting you this week because I want to talk to you about that. The Lord does all of this for his glory. For no other purpose, he does it for his glory. As followers of Jesus Christ, this is a truth and an attribute of God that we must embrace and believe with all of our being. Too often we doubt that God is truly 
all-powerful. We may pray for healing, but doubt that it will really happen. We may pray for salvation of a family member or a friend, but doubt that they will actually turn to Jesus. Those are not prayers of faith, trusting in an all-powerful God. God is willing and able to do the miraculous, the supernatural. And just this week, as I was walking the dog in the orchard and praying, he brought to mind a situation uh, that I've been wrestling with. And um, he said, uh, Stuart, um, do, you don't actually believe that I'm all-powerful, that I can handle that. And I was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're actually, but I mean, when it comes to other situations, I'm like all there. I'm like, God, you're all powerful. And I'm preaching it to you. And I'm telling you, God's all powerful. You, he can do anything. There's nothing that he, that he can't do. And yet in this particular situation, I was like, God can't do this. And it changed my prayers completely for this particular situation. And I just began to commit it to the Lord. First, I confessed. I was like, you're right, Lord. I was wrong. And my own beliefs showed that I don't really truly believe that you're all-powerful. And so God is willing and able to do the miraculous, the supernatural. He is all-powerful. We see the confirmation of the covenant then as he confronts um, Abraham. The Lord states his covenant announcement a second time so that Sarah can hear it again. He will return in a year and Sarah will have a son Hamilton says this, Sarah's unbelief does not abort or sidetrack or slow down the promise of God. She will conceive whether she, whether she thinks she can or cannot. Isn't that amazing? It's like, so Sarah's really like, ah, I don't think it's going to happen. And, and God's like, well, your unbelief isn't going to stop what's going to happen. The same is true for us. Our unbelief in God's ability to do the supernatural doesn't stop his plan and his purpose. It doesn't void it. He's in control. We see an, another reaction of Sarah to the Lord's presence in this uh, last C word, Colony. I told you it was going to be rough, right? You're like, Colony? What does that mean? I put in parentheses, it's a fancy word for lie. It's a C word that means lie. So <laughs> I'm helping to just expand your vocabulary today. Sarah was afraid, so she lied. Her second reaction to the presence of the Lord in her life was fear, which caused her to lie. And fear can drive us to do things we normally wouldn't do otherwise. <laughs> Hamilton says, fear moves people to do things that are irrational and uncharacteristic of them. Adam d hid because he was afraid of God. Abraham deceived because he was afraid of what the Egyptians might do to him. Now Sarah is afraid because she, was, she has challenged the authenticity of a divine promise and because she has irked the divine visitor. Thus she lies. I did not laugh. A second sin is committed, lying, in an attempt to cover up the first sin of unbelief. Isn't that how it happens with us? We, we do one sin, and then we do another one to cover that up, and then we have to keep doing more. And Why did the Lord confront Sarah about her laughter, but not Abraham about his laughter? Because both Abraham and Sarah laughed about the same covenantal announcement. Here's the difference. Abraham's laughter was based on joyful astonished faith his laughter was the kind of laughter like oh this is amazing Woohoo! so excited and sarah's laughter was marked by doubt and unbelief it was more of a smirk is how i look at it she's like <laughs> right yeah those are two different kind of laughs aren't they 
But we see no condemnation. The Lord confirms that Sarah did actually laugh. And John Corson says, the Lord doesn't condemn Sarah for laughing, but simply reminds her that he knows exactly what's going on in her heart and what she's doing behind closed tent flaps. He's like, yes, you did. You did laugh. I know your heart. I know your thoughts. I'm still going to do this. There's one final principle that's evident throughout verses 9 to 15. It just comes in verse 9, verse 10, verse 13, and verse 15. And it's this. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. The Lord knew Sarah's name in verse 9. The Lord knew the future concerning Sarah having a son in verse 10. <laughs> there, test. There, I'm back on. The Lord knew what Sarah did in the privacy of her tent, verse 13. The Lord knew what Sarah had that Sarah had laughed to herself in verse 15. This all-knowing God is also aware of everything that's going on in our lives. Guess what? He knows your name. He knows your future. He knows what you do in the privacy of your own home. He knows the attitude of your heart and knows your thoughts. Just like he did with Sarah. So as we review, just a couple of questions for you. Do you need to eagerly approach the Lord each day with excitement, enthusiasm, and humility? Whom can you show hospitality to this coming week by having a meal together with them? What time, talent, or resource do you need to give the best of to the Lord? The same is true of the church. We need to make sure that we are giving our best to the Lord as a congregation, that we're coming to him as a congregation with enthusiasm and excitement and humility. And then we're showing hospitality to those that God brings into our fellowship. You know, we talked yesterday in our dream retreat about getting ready for company or being ready, prepared for company. That's what we want to be. Hospitality is a huge part of that. And so... Let's see if I can make this mic, the batteries last. Just one... I just can't hear it in the monitor. Okay. You can hear it? Good. That's all that, that matters. I don't have to hear myself. <laughs> How do you react to the Lord's presence in your life? Do you bow low to the ground and worship him? Or do you waver in your beliefs about his abilities to do the supernatural and the miraculous? That's a question only you can answer today. Where are you at? How do you react to the presence of the Lord in your life? I hope that it's worship and service and it's not wavering in doubt and fear. As the worship team prepares to come, would you just bow your heads with me as we uh, commit this to the Lord in prayer? Lord, we just come to you, and we thank you for your word, and thank you for what uh, you do in and through us, and how your word just speaks to right where we're at, Lord. I just ask that, um, that you would guide uh, and direct now by your Holy Spirit as... Um, he just works in each heart and mind. I pray, Lord God, that whatever work needs to take place, that your people would be open to that. And so, Lord, we, we lift it up to you. We lift ourselves up to you as well, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.